Well, this is part two of Obadiah. And if you didn't get part one, um, some things may not make sense, um, but you can listen again. Um, but here we are. Where does it begin? The vision of Obadiah. This is what the Sovereign Lord says. We saw last time the Sovereign Lord is working over and above the plans of the nations to bring about his purposes. Obadiah ends, verse 21, the kingdom will be the Lord's. Dominion belongs to the Lord. The Lord is the Sovereign. This is what we saw last week and we asked what is he doing with his sovereignty and we see in Obadiah that he is bringing the end of this nation called Edom. Why? Well, verse 3, the pride of your of Edom's heart has deceived you. Edom thought they were untouchable, uh, but they were deceived by that. Uh, and in Obadiah we see that the sovereignty of the Lord and the sovereignty of the self are, are unstable, incompatible. And the Lord is not going to share his throne. He must not share his throne. Eternity and all happiness depends upon it. So in the end, only the Lord will be exalted. And pride will be defeated, whether that's willingly or not. The Lord in Obadiah is against the pride of Edom. Edom, who didn't reckon for God. They thought they were beyond his reach. And so Obadiah's message is that the sovereign Lord, um, the sovereign Lord is, is king over all. He's the king of kings and you cannot escape him. So his message about Edom is this nation is going to be destroyed. And yet we saw last week is, as the Lord pronounces this judgment in, in the middle of verse 5, in the middle of the judgment, he breaks out and says, Oh, he grieves as he pronounces the judgment, a cry of lament. He doesn't delight in these things. He is terrible and he is tender. And this prophecy of Obadiah is set uh, around the time just after the fall of Jerusalem in 586 B.C., when the city was burned to the ground and the people there were slaughtered or taken captive with just a few poor left in the city. And then the message comes about Edom, about this nation just at the south. The Edom who were descended from Esau, Jacob's son, uh, Isaac's son even. Isaac had two sons, Jacob and Esau, twins who fought in the womb, who became these nations, Edom and Israel, who fought together. That's what we're looking at in Obadiah, what God says about this nation Edom. And over these two weeks, we're going to see five things. Uh, last week, JC, if you press the button. Brilliant. Last week, we saw the first three things from Obadiah, the sovereign Lord, the deception and defeat of pride, and the terrible and tender God. We're going to see two more things this week. But let's just try and kind of orientate our hearts towards what we're going to be looking at. Uh, there is a, a Japanese saying. You can press the button again if you like, JC. A Japanese saying which goes, the misfortune of others tastes like honey. Um, obviously in Japanese, not in English. Um, many languages have a word for this, this type of attitude. Apart from English, interestingly, we borrow the German one, which is... Andrew, say it for me. There we go, that's the word. You get that? Disaster pleasure is what it means. Um, and, and it's really common. And there's a study that showed that football fans smile more quickly and more broadly when their opponents miss a penalty than when their own team scores a penalty. Interesting, isn't it? So common. Now, the, the philosopher Nietzsche, he said this is essential to humanity. He said, to see others suffer does one good. Probably right, but it's a fairly common thing um, to, to enjoy seeing the suffering of others. We might not agree that it's good, and yet how easy it is probably leaves us a bit uneasy. The smugness when we hear about um, a, a celebrity's misery or, or a, a politician is found out to be a hypocrite in some kind of way. I don't know if you remember a few years ago when Nigel Farage had the milkshake incident. I wonder what, I wonder what you thought when you saw that. Um, did we laugh? 
the misfortune of others tastes like honey. And why is it? And we probably don't think it does as good. Um, but, but, but why is it that there's a thing, a pleasure that's found in seeing the suffering of others? And there's an article in the Guardian newspaper that said, we clutch at the disappointments of others in order to feel better about our own. Maybe that's getting somewhere. Maybe that's getting somewhere because at the end of the day, sadly, what matters most to us is usually us. And we respond to what happens to others in a way to boost ourselves. Because we're not really that different to these ancient Edomites. Now the fourth thing for us to see as we consider an Obadiah, if you press the button, Joyce, pride suffocates love. Now, follow with me how Obadiah unpacks this. We have verse 1. We saw this last time. The sovereign Lord is calling the nations to war against Edom. Verse 3, the reason is the pride of Edom. And verses 5 to 10 describe the, the kind of devastating extent of the destruction that's going to come. And it ends in verse 10, end of verse 10. Speaking about Edom, you will be covered with shame. You will be destroyed forever. But if you look at the beginning of verse 10, the charge against Edom seems to have shifted away from pride. Do you see that? Well, what's the reason? Because of the violence against your brother Jacob. The pride of Edom is being worked out and seen in their attitude towards Jacob, towards the Israelites. But what did they do? Well, in 586 BC, the armies of Babylon finally overran Jerusalem. What did they do on that day? Well, verse 11 says, on that day... You, Edom, stood aloof while strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem. You were like one of them. Edom sided with Jerusalem's enemies. Verse 12 says they gloated, which means to look with satisfaction and joy. What were they looking at? They were looking at the downfall of a nation. To hear the scream of the slaughtered and to smile. To watch the smoke and the dust rise up from the devastation and rub their hands with happiness. It gloated. No, you should not gloat over your brother on the day of his misfortune, nor rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their destruction, nor boast so much in the day of their trouble. That's the first thing Edom did. They, they, they stood aloof and smiled whilst Jerusalem burned. What was the second thing they did? Verse 13. You should not march through the gates of my people in the day of their disaster, nor gloat over them in their calamity in the day of their disaster. It wasn't enough for Edom just to stand back. They wanted to get right up close. A bit like when cars slowed down next to an accident to see some of the gory details. Edom didn't want to laugh at a distance. They wanted to laugh in their faces. So they joined in the plunder. They seized the wealth. And then the cruel twist of the knife. You see it? Verse 14. You should not wait at the crossroads to cut down their fugitives, nor hand over their survivors in the day of their trouble. Terrible scene, isn't it? You imagine maybe in the dead of the night there's a, a group of refugees who've escaped the city. They're wide-eyed, they're bewildered, they're, they're, they're devastated, but they've escaped. And, and as they escape down the road, they meet a group of Edomites who are waiting to either cut them down or hand them back to the enemy. That's what Edom did. And, uh, and as this is unpacked, the Lord highlights something that makes it so much worse. It comes in verse 10. It's because of the violence against who? Your brother, Jacob. Again, it comes in verse 12. You should not gloat over your brother. 
Uh, we thought last time about how Obadiah's message might be heard in different places. Well, well imagine if Obadiah went to speak this message in Edom. Now, look, we thought last time mostly about him being in Jerusalem with the, the, the wreckage, speaking to this bedraggled few who had been left behind. But what if Obadiah went from there into Edom and he brought the message? In Edom, there was peace in Edom. The cities were safe. The economy had, had boomed with all the plunder from Jerusalem. They're, they're doing pretty well. So if Obadiah comes to them and says, the Lord is going to bring disaster on you because of what you did to your brother, what's Edom going to say? I say, what? Am I my brother's keeper? Isn't that what they're going to say? Just like Cain after he killed Abel and God confronted him. Am I my brother's keeper? Yes, of course you are, Cain, and the blood of your brother cries out. Edom, yes, you were, and the blood of Jerusalem cries out against you as you stood back and gloated and then contributed your cruel part to their calamity. Now what this is, this is the pride of Edom applied in their personal relationships. Now pride is a, a self-concerned attitude, right? It's all about me, and so pride has to suffocate love because love is not all about me. A true love is about the other, isn't it? about putting the needs of others above yourself. But pride just can't do that. Pride must suffocate love. You know, when Jesus said that the whole of the law is summed up in one command, what was the command? What was the command? Love God. Love God. What was the second command? Love your neighbour as yourself. Really, just the two are the same. We've seen it as we've gone through one John, haven't we? You can't say you love God and not your brother. It doesn't work like that. If you love God, it will be seen in your love for others. But Edom's heart was proud. They didn't love God. They loved themselves. And so they failed to love their brother. It's all connected. We're all connected. Their failure to love, this complete lack of compassion, revealed how wrong they were about God. And this prophecy of Obadiah is given to us to warn us. To help us search our own hearts and to ask, how might that attitude of Edom be seen in here. What did they do? Edom stood aloof, didn't they? Cold, unmoved by the plight. There was no compassion. Where do we see that in here? Times when we just don't care. We don't really want to know about the struggles that others face. Or even we stand so aloof we just don't even know. Edom gloated. We could cloak that with a kind of false concern, couldn't we? really being gleeful of the struggles of others. We could do it maybe in sharing a prayer request, couldn't we? We must pray for so-and-so because do you know what's happened? Our hearts, in our hearts, their misfortune tastes like honey because we feel so much better about ourselves. Smug. Edom gloated and then Edom twisted the knife as they cut off the refugees. No, we wouldn't do that, would we, of course? We wouldn't do that. We wouldn't pass on that little bit of information that just seals the end of someone's reputation. We wouldn't do that, would we? We wouldn't just press into the, the, the kind of open sore of, of a wound with empty platitude. If only they'd prayed a bit more. Maybe God's trying to teach you something. Whenever we see anything like Edom in our hearts, we must be appalled. And we must not stop there, but trace the route back to how wrongly we have understood the Lord. Pride, self-love, self-centered exaltation gets cloaked up in all kinds of respectable clothes, but it is foolish always to try and dethrone God. What's the Lord going to do? We saw it last time, didn't we, in verse 4. The Lord says, I will bring you down. The pride cannot stand before the Lord. In verse 15, as you have done, it will be done to you. Your deeds will return upon your own head. 
It's called exact retribution. It's the principle of God's justice. You get precisely what you deserve. The way you have dealt with others will be mirrored in the way the Lord deals with you. And we see that with Edom. It's right here. You look in verse 7. What's going to happen to Edom? All your allies will force you to the border. Your friends will deceive and overpower you. Those who eat your bread will set a trap for you, but you won't detect it. Are those who should be closest, your brother, are those who are going to turn against you, Edom. Just as Edom had dealt it out to Jacob, so will their friends deal it out to them. Pure, perfect justice. As you have done, it will be done to you. And yet the justice goes deeper. And we must tread very carefully. This, this um, loveless lack of compassion shown by Edom merited what was coming to them but this failure to love grew out of their pride where their hearts stood opposed to the lord of glory and in their pride they said we've got no need for god we have no dependence on him we can stand without him and justice says as you have done it will be done to you so you see in verse 15 before before we get the principle of justice in verse 15 the the scope of Obadiah begins to expand as Edom becomes a kind of example, but the subject is now what the Lord will do with all nations. The day of the Lord is near for all nations. And what will that mean? Verse 16. Just as you drank on my holy hill, so all the nations will drink continually. They will drink and drink and be as if they had never been. You see, what's at stake here is the Lord's holiness. It's there in verse 16. It's on my holy hill. The holiness of the Lord, the complete, unique, otherness and supreme mostness. The pride of Edom has set itself against the Lord's holiness. We saw last time that rebellion will not abide. And so what does the Lord do? He gives a cup to drink in verse, in verse 16. This cup is the cup of his wrath. And the psalm, the psalm 75, speaks of it like this. In the hand of the Lord is a cup of foaming wine mixed with spices. He pours it out and all the wicked of the earth drink it down to its very dregs. In verse 16, he's kind of looking beyond the immediate rise and fall of nations to the end, to this day of the Lord. And on that day, the pure justice of God and his wrath against sin will be poured out and the nations will drink and they will be no more. So we have to go carefully in how we hear this, don't we? If we see anything of Edom in our hearts, something about smugness, happiness at the plight of others, that's no small thing in the justice of God. It's the fruit of a heart of pride. We must join in that terrible drinking, ended under the wrath of God. But, see where verse 17 begins? But, our next point. Now, what would Edom say if they heard this message? You imagine there, this prophet Obadiah he goes to Edom and he describes the coming of God's wrath against their sin. What will Edom say? If they stick to form, they're going to say, I've built my home on the heights. No one can touch me. That's what they're going to say, isn't it? Now, what would we say today if we stood with Edom, if we had the spirit of Edom in us? Wouldn't we say, oh, I don't like the sound of that. God of wrath, that sounds, that sounds horrible. And what does that even mean to say that? What position do we have to judge the maker of heaven and earth and tell him what is right and wrong? That's what Adam and Eve tried to do in Eden. If we had the, the spirit of Edom within us, wouldn't we say, ah, fine, God's going to punish my sin, blah, blah, blah. It's 
Go and watch television. Wouldn't we do that? And when we are not deeply disturbed by the reality of the day of the Lord and the cup of wrath which will be drunk by all nations, we are simply standing with Edom and saying, no one can bring me down. I'm secured. Secured by the life that I've built. I'm comforted by the false ideas I have of God's niceness. And I'm cushioned by the deception that my goodness will carry me. What would Edom say? We don't know what Edom would say. We're not told what Edom would say. The only question to ask though, is there any escape? That's the only question to ask. Verse 17. But. It's a single letter in the Hebrew, but it carries such comfort. But. But what? On Mount Zion will be deliverance. Or perhaps we could say there will be escape. There will be a way of escape. You notice in verse 13, as the Lord describes what Edom did to Jerusalem, he says this is my people. My people. You know, the day of disaster had come upon Jerusalem because they had turned from the Lord. And I think verse 16 is speaking to Jerusalem, the people of God. Just as you drank, the destruction of Jerusalem was an act of divine judgment against centuries of wickedness. But they're still his people. And the place where it happens is still, as God says, my holy hill. And verse 17 says, it will be holy. Or, or even better, there, there will be holiness pouring out. Verse 16, on, on my holy hill, verse 17, there will be holiness. And between these holinesses, there is escape. And what's the escape from? The only threat, the only real threat in the book of Obadiah is the judgment of there will be an escape and it will be from that cup. It will be from that judgment. And on Mount Zion there will be holiness. The holiness of the Lord will, will spread out from the place. And what's happening is what was, was modelled back in, in the wilderness when Moses built the tabernacle and the places of sacrifice were set up and the blood was poured out as an atonement for sin so that the tabernacle would be a place of meeting. The Lord said, Exodus 29, I will dwell among the Israelites and be their God. And then Solomon built the tabernacle into the temple and he poured out rivers of blood to atone for sin because the place was a meeting place between heaven and earth and between God and man. And the Lord's presence dwelt there. And then after centuries of rebellion and sin, the Lord withdrew. And the Babylonians invaded and the temple was destroyed. But it was not the end. There was a people who were still my people. There was a place that was still my holy hill. And, and the pouring out of God's wrath on sin was just clearing the way for his holiness to spread out. Because his purposes will not be shaken. The Lord's promises will be realised. What does it say in verse 17? Jacob will possess his inheritance. And verses 19 to 20 are a bit hard to work out. But the basic idea is, is an image of God's people expanding outwards in all directions of the compass. And then it ends in verse 21 where deliverers go up on Mount Zion, ruling the mountains of Esau, and the kingdom will be the Lord's, because dominion belongs to the Lord. And finally, as we saw last week, all things will be brought together under Christ, and every promise of the Lord will be yes and amen in Christ. And the question we ask, though, is, is there escape from the wrath of God? Verse 17 says, yes, there will be escape. But also, no. See verse 18. There will be no survivors from Esau. Is there escape? Yes. 
and none. And why is that? Why, why is it for some and not for others? We have to be very clear as we ask questions like that. Because we have to, we have to clear away the, the, some of the problems that get into our mind as we think about it. The difference is not based on what is deserved. There is nobody innocent in Obadiah. In fact, Obadiah sits among what we call the 12 minor prophets. And, and these 12 minor prophets, together, they, they, they tell a story. that They tell about sin and about punishment and about redemption. And, and Obadiah sits in that sin section. And, and he's followed then by Jonah. We're more familiar with Jonah, probably, aren't we? Uh, when God told Jonah to go to Nineveh and preach the judgment of God. And Jonah refused. But after the big fish, he went. And his message in Nineveh was, 40 days and you're done. And the people listened. And Nineveh was a terribly wicked place. But, but they listened and the king called the National Day of Repentance. And he said, God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. And God did relent. And with compassion he did turn from his fierce anger so that they would not perish. And Jonah watched it and he was angry enough to die. And he was sitting on the hill watching and waiting for the judgment of God to fall. Jonah was there standing aloof, gleefully anticipating the fall of his enemies. And when it didn't come, he was furious. And Jonah was the Israelite man of God. But his attitude towards Nineveh was exactly the same as Edom's towards Israel. You see, Jonah follows Obadiah with the sickening realisation that there was... There was not more kindness in the people of God than there was anywhere else. Nobody's innocent. So, so why then is there escape for some and not for others? If we read on into Jonah, it just intensifies the question because the answer cannot be that some deserved it and others didn't. Why for some is there escape? I think the answer is what we saw in verse 13 when the Lord calls them my people. They belong to God. It wasn't because of their goodness. It's because he chose them and he made them his own and he wrapped them up in his covenant promises. Because this mercy that is given is a pure mercy. They didn't do a thing to deserve it. The only difference between them and others is the mercy of God. And so it raises the question for us this evening. What about us? What about me? What about you? Is there escape from me from the wrath of God? Is this mercy mine? Well, I guess one way to approach that question is to, is to come to Obadiah and say, well, how do those who escape act out the electing mercy? Now, those who are God's people, how is that mercy manifest? What does it look like? Well, I think simply it is they go to Mount Zion. On verse, verse 17 says, on Mount Zion there is escape. And verse 21 says about deliverers. The text is quite hard here, but the, the old Greek translation suggests that it's a passive. Which doesn't mean those who deliver, but those who are delivered. And those who have been saved are the ones who go up on Mount Zion. You see, we've got, in Obadiah, we've got Edom, who are the epitome of pride, who build their own refuge and think they're safe when they're not. And then we've got the people of God, the true remnant of his people, who abandon their self-made refuges and they go to the Lord himself. They flee the wrath of God by going to the place of God. 
That is a humble repentance. That's how the people of God are known. That's how they act out this electing mercy. That's, that's why when we read from Obadiah into Jonah, we meet this city of Nineveh. A city never included in covenant promises, but, but there we find those who humbly repent of their sin and cast themselves upon the compassion of the Lord. And so they show that they also belong to this people of God because they act out this electing mercy. And we could bring that back to Obadiah, couldn't we? We could be, we've been asking how the people of Edom might have responded to the message of destruction. Maybe this message itself is mercy to them. Just like Jonah's message of destruction to Nineveh was mercy to them as it moved them to abandon their self-built security and cast themselves upon the compassion of the Lord. Maybe Obadiah's message would do the same for the Edomites. We don't know, do we? It's not our story to tell. But we must ask about our own story. How clearly do we see the mercy of God? How firm is our grasp on this mercy? Do we see how pure it is? How unadulterated, how unaffected it is by us? You see, we are all worthy of the wrath of God. We like Edom. And mercy leaves no room for us to stand on our own merit. Now, if we, if we, if we choose to profess innocence or, or we want to kind of present a claim against the injustice of God or we, we refuse just to think about God's anger and his punishment of sin, we can't do those things and keep hold of this mercy. This mercy of God is, is pure, it's a sovereign mercy. And when we see this mercy right, it leaves us only with a, with a stunned thankfulness, a bound a, 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 in wonder at the awesome mystery of God, that this salvation, it comes from him, it's through him, it's from him, through him, to him, always, it's all about him. That's what mercy means. And when we see it right, we go low. Low because of our unworthiness and simultaneously delighted at what God has Jonathan Edwards wrote it like this. He said, The desires of the saints, however earnest, are humble desires. The hope of the saints is a humble hope, and their joy, even when it's unspeakable and full of glory, is humble, broken-hearted joy. And it leaves the Christian more poor in spirit and more like a child and more disposed to a universal loneliness of that. Seeing this sovereign mercy of God expels the pride of Edom from our hearts. You see, when we accept the Bible's testimony against us, it tells us that we have sinned. We haven't loved God as we should or our neighbour as ourselves. And really, we sit alongside Cain, who murdered his brother. And uh, we sit uh, among the people of Edom, who, who stood aloof and hardened their hearts. And we really stand with all people in all history, don't we? Apart from one. Just one, one who came into the world to be a brother. One who, who would not fail to be his brother's keeper. One who came into the world to be a brother who wouldn't falter or fail in his love. A brother whose fierce and steadfast love would take him to a cross, a cross where he would refuse to come down from. A brother who would take the cup of God's wrath from our hands and he would drink it himself. He would drink and drink and drink until it was gone and he had expired. There is an escape from the wrath of God, only in the wrath-bearing death of the Son of God. There is an escape from the wrath of God, but we are only going to see it 
We're only going to see it if we look away from ourselves and we look to the sovereign mercy of God in the death of Jesus Christ. So there will be holiness. Those who deserve to drink the cup, even those who deserve to drink the cup, but find this escape, there will be holiness. And our great brother Jesus Christ, Hebrews 2, speaks about him and says, both the one who makes people holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers. Have you an escape? Are you part of the people of God? And we need to ask ourselves, how do we respond to this Jesus? How do we respond to the one who, who carried in his body the punishment for your sins, the one who was crushed for your iniquity, the one who was drowned in the cup of God's wrath? And he's not ashamed to call you brother. And he's not ashamed to call you sister. See, we act out the sovereign electing mercy as we abandon all our self-constructed confidence. We put our hope only in Jesus. We put all our confidence in the Lord who alone is sovereign and the kingdom will be the Lord's and all dominion and power, authority forever and ever will be to the Lamb, the Lamb who was slain. Let's fix our eyes on the Lord Jesus. Let's take a moment just to reflect on how we personally will respond and then we'll, we'll sing and we'll pray and we'll sing together.